You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est milanais. Nous partons là-bas si le portrait lui plaît. Il a épuisé déjà un peintre avant vous. Que s'est-il passé Je ne sais pas. Elle vous attend. everybody you were just listening to the trailer for portrait of a lady on fire and the story is as follows in 1770 the young daughter of a french countess develops a mutual attraction to the female artist commissioned to paint her wedding portrait the film is starring noemi merlant and adele hanel it is written and directed by celine skiyama joining me for this podcast review i have josh parm hello hello dan bear good morning everyone and also here today, we have two guests. First up, we have a returning Kaya Shinyada from Scratch Cinema. Hello. And also for the first time ever here on the podcast, you have probably seen this person on social media going hard for this movie for a long, long time. One of the best mascots for this film we could possibly ever imagine. We are so, so, so happy to have her voice and her perspective here today for this very special film I have from Cinema Etc., Sarah Williams. Hey, guys. <laughs> All right, everyone. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, an impromptu podcast recording that I can admit that we weren't expecting to do, considering that it's a 2019 film. Uh, but, you know, we're in the middle of Pride Month at the moment. And this is a very, very special film to a lot of people ever since its release last year at the Cannes Film Festival. And it also has a Criterion release coming out in three days' time. It was available to view uh, for rewatch on Hulu for those that have a subscription. So timing for this felt right. And, you know, lack of other content out there right now, It this just seemed like the right thing to do. So very, very happy to finally give this film its due after not uh, having a chance to fit it into our schedule last year. So... Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, this was a rewatch for me. I know that for several people here, um, it's more than just a rewatch. It's a religion. So um, I would actually like to hear first and foremost uh, from Sarah. Sarah, um, general thoughts on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
Well, I've been a fan of Celine Sciamma's films for quite a while, and so I know I was one of the first people on here talking about it. I had heard the news about it and didn't know quite what it was. There was a vague synopsis out about it. Um, September 2018, I'd been looking forward to it. Didn't get to see it until last September. Uh, I've watched it maybe 22 times by now, made everyone. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I don't know. The film's been a lot, been a lot for me. I like, I can definitely recognize a lot of the influences in it. Um, the character of Eloise is a character I've connected to a lot. And every time I watch the film, I almost feel like I'm seeing something new from it. I've been wanting to talk about somewhere the, how the film is basically a reinvention of Titanic. And Celine's mentioned this quite a bit. And I've never seen anyone actually write about fully that the film is basically just Titanic, but Celine's version of it. That's a very, very interesting take. I can't wait to dive into the specifics of that, actually. So um, really, really excited to hear more there. Kaya, what about you? What do you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Um, I was kind of underwhelmed. <gasps> oh no! I know. This was a uh, fir- this was a first time viewing, right? Yeah, I watched it last night for the first <gasps> time. <ever. laughs> All right, hold on, hold on. Let's give her some breathing room. Let let let's hear it. I don't really know. I don't know if it was the mood I was in, but I didn't connect with it that much. Um, I almost liked the beginning more because it felt a bit like a ghost story to me in a way. Before we actually get to meet Heloise, hmm. and. Then afterwards, I was just kind of like, eh, it's okay. Hmm. I get it, but yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) We're going to dive into that a little bit more as well, because I think that your reaction is one that, I mean, I've definitely heard from some others as well, especially when it comes to things like the film's uh, pacing, um, how quiet and intimate it is, and... uh, uh, I know that for some people, sometimes they don't jive with that necessarily. So we're going to dive into that definitely in a little bit more here in a bit. Um, Dan Bear, what about you? Uh, so this is my second time with this movie after having seen it in the like <laughs> the one week qualifying run in New York last December. Thanks a lot, Neon. Um, and I... The second time watching it, every little problem that I had from the first time completely faded away in the absolute fucking mastery of um, every craft element (laughs) that is present in this film. It's just... uh, I, I I was breathless all the way through and just from the the colors the shot compositions the 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 lack of music until there was music um the the performances i i could watch noemi merlant and adele hanel look at each other for hours on end and be endlessly riveted and fascinated by it. I think they have two of maybe the most remarkable, perfect faces in cinema. And boy, howdy does Celine Tiama know how to use it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a lot of, 
A lot of stairs in this movie. I have that all capitalized here on my notes here. The stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Parm, what about you? What do you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? So this is not my first time watching this movie. I've watched it several times uh, since it was first starting to make the rounds last year. And uh, this is my favorite movie of 2019. I think that it is just a masterpiece, really. I, I love that this is a movie that is exclusively about not just this female love story, but just like women in general, just about how they interact with each other, how they view the world and how it is exclusively from that perspective. And I think that Celine Siama just does such a wonderful job of conveying that in a cinematic way. And I think it's just tremendous work. And I also have to sing the praises of these two um, actresses here. I think that they give just such astounding performances. They have such great chemistry with each other and embody these characters in such a authentic way that makes them so compelling. And it's beautiful to look at. And it's just so emotional. I I really do think that this is just one of the the greats out there. I think it's an uh, an amazing achievement. Yeah, I uh, I think I've told this story before, but for those that are unfamiliar with it, I uh, <laughs> left work midday. I remember I had to leave work and then come back to work later just to go see this movie. It was it was playing at uh, NYFF and I had missed it um, three times before that. I had three other opportunities to see the movie at uh, separate screenings and other festivals, and I missed it all three of those times. So I knew uh, that this was like my last chance to uh, see the movie. Otherwise, I would have to wait for that December release, which, believe me, I had no intention on doing. <laughs> so I'm like racing to the theater and I'm... I know I'm not going to make it. I'm at a point where I'm like, I remember I was texting you guys and being like, I'm not going to make it. Oh, my God, it's starting. Mm. And I was flipping out. And then by the time I got in the theater, I had missed uh, the first couple of minutes of the movie. I was sweating profusely. My heart rate was jacked through the roof. I was so uncomfortable because then it's like, you know, when you come to a point of rest after so much like huffing and puffing and stuff and then you just sweat more well then so that was happening so needless to say like i i my, my experience watching the movie was still a good one um but i walked away from it thinking that it was one of the best films of the year but i wasn't ready to like label it as like a masterpiece or perfection or anything like that uh fast forward to my rewatch of this movie for this podcast and I enjoyed it more on a rewatch than I did the first time around which I think speaks to the circumstances surrounding my first viewing probably <laughs> um and I can see everything that everyone says is so great about this movie and uh, as I said a couple of times I can't wait to kind of dive into those specifics here uh but the thing I want to kind of actually first start off with is um the lasting impression that I was uh left with with this film is that it's such a hypnotic movie that we look at mm -hmm. and we observe. And the movie is so much about the power of observation. It's about like those detailed moments, the moments that are shared between people, the moments that are missed. And going back to like those stares again between the two actresses and how they just look at each other and observe each other. I, 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 I'm spellbound by Celine Siama's patience with this movie to just let this movie be about observation and slowly but surely with a little bit of time and just the right amount of patience 
we're able to see a tremendous amount of depth and humanity and something that's truly universal about uh, these two characters. And and not just them, but also um, the maid Sophie as well, uh, who's another uh, character in this film that people uh, maybe tend to forget about just a little bit because she's more of a supporting player here. But um, I, I, I agree with what Josh said. It's a really, really just amazing, oh God, no pun intended, portrait of women being women and supporting women and helping them to be free. And it's just lovely to see. <laughs> I didn't expect to rhyme there. <laughs> there you go. I, the, both times I saw this, my my reaction to like basically the opening scene was <sighs> fucking men. <laughs> like she has to go dive in the water to get her shit that you couldn't tie down yourselves. Like, come on, dude. How does she swim in that skirt? That's what I, I want right. to know. <laughs> Another great example of that, too, is like at the end of the film when she's at the art gallery and the guy is like uh, giving his critique of her painting. And I, I don't know about you guys, but even though she's smiling and nodding, I know that, like, deep down inside and us as an audience, we don't give a shit what this guy thinks in that moment. Like, just move along, sir. <laughs> you know? oh, well, also in that moment, at first when he comes up to her, he says, like, oh, this painting's really great. Your father's doing great work. And when she tells him, oh, no, it's mine. I just submitted it in his name. He almost starts to get then more critical at that point. Like, yes. that's when he starts to give his commentary. And I think that... That is precisely a theme that the movie's working with is that women have to deal with so much bullshit from men <laughs> that when you just get rid of them, the world just becomes so much more rich and textured and more interesting. And, you know, considering the amount of movies we have gotten from exclusively male perspectives, it's just so refreshing to not only see that in this movie, but see it done so artfully and and just just. I just love the way that he goes about exploring that world. Um, when you mentioned the way they look at each other in the movie before, too. Yeah. Um, so, Noemi Merlot actually talked about in an interview how, um, in order to get the gaze that Marianne looks at Eloise with, she had actually looked at how Celine Siama and Odell and Elle would look at each other on set because the two had a history that ended maybe three years before filming. But she would look at how they would look at each other on set and she would try to emulate that. So I think there's a lot of personal elements to the film, which is what makes like the emotional parts of it work so well. Um, and then with Sophie, there's an interview that Celine had done in 2013 with Girls Like Us magazine where she talks about how in all of her films... Um, she has always has a third side character who is the character that you walk out of theaters thinking about the most because they may not be the most important like plot wise, but it's the character that adds depth that will add another layer to the relationship between the other two women. And she had said this before, like before even starting the portrait script. And it's actually really interesting to see how that still remained a theme in her films. Yeah, I mean, Sophie's pregnancy and the 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 miscarriage that they essentially try to help her have is something that you know on one end somebody can look at that and say oh that's horrible but portrayed here the way that it is and with these themes in mind that we're working with it, it's a it's a really enriching um thing to see how much like these women just care about each other and the support that they're providing to one another and 
I like what you just said there, uh, Sarah, about how that supporting character is used there. Maybe not so much heavily within the plot, but used to do exactly what a supporting character is supposed to do, and that is support the leads and push them forward and add more texture to the movie. And I think that that uh, subplot definitely does, especially also, too, when we get that very great scene of um, all three of them playing cards together and just yeah. having fun. Yeah. Mm. I oh, that love seems- that scene so much. Well, because it's not the movie's not dwelling then on the drama, the emotion and the, you know, trying to um, portray like a very horrific uh, event, possibly, you know, there, there's some levity in there as well, because, yeah. I mean, let's face it, you know, that's life. You know, life's got full of ups and downs. Yeah, the film's like direct avoidance of trauma is actually very interesting because you never see any shame for it being two women. You just see you just see the issues that come with her already being scheduled to be married off. There's never any issue, no confrontation with that. And also with Sophie, you never see any confrontation or anything judgmental. No one is judged for anything they do in the movie. Life just takes its course on them. And it's very interesting because it almost makes the movie a safer place to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, first of all, we, we stan a period film that shows having a woman having an abortion because as long as there have been women, there have been abortions for various reasons. And I love that everyone is just supportive and the like does not care for any, there was no social stigma about it. There's nothing. It's just, do you want this baby? No. Okay. Let's take care of it. I, I really, really love that women sticking up for women and like these things did happen back then as much as some people would like to not think that. And I love that. Love, love, love. But I think it's also like super important to point out once again, like the lack of um, you guys said the the, uh, the trauma, yeah. but the lack of like melodrama as well. Like there aren't these like expected beats um, of like bursts of drama that one would expect. For example, like when Heloise um, finds out that um, that Marianne has been, quote unquote, spying on her, essentially from her uh, by her mother uh, to get this portrait of her. There isn't like this great Oscar bait, like outburst scene of, you know, hysterics and so on and so forth. It, it's all done in a very subtle and nuanced way that I don't know about you guys, but like it made me lean in more into the movie because I was so fascinated by the direction that it was choosing to go in instead of the atypical, let's just go directly for the drama, you know what I mean? And just get that emotionally manipulative reaction from the audience type of route, you know? Absolutely. And it feels so much more true to these characters in this time period to have those, the kind of reactions they do as opposed to going all Oscar Beatty flipping out. How dare you? Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot more internalized and by that way feels a lot more authentic. As you said, then it feels like these are characters acting in, a way that they would be. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily just scream and shout at a person. You would express your disappointment. And you would also point that disappointment to, like, very 
personal things as mm-hmm. you know <laughs> questioning one's integrity as an artist and that feels real and it feels real to both of those characters the way that they react and you find that throughout this entire movie and i think especially with that scene eloise doesn't freak out on her and she doesn't make her leave and she actually asks her to stay and paint the painting again it's yeah. actually quite interesting because she's staying for the small chance that she may find some sort of solace in her is if yeah. she had just let her leave when her mother had tried to fire her um, she could have just get, gotten another male painter who would come. She could keep driving painters away. She could keep putting off her marriage. But she instead decides to go on with the marriage, essentially, because she'll have this week where she could essentially have a freer life for a short amount of time and have some memory to hold on to. Isn't that like uh, there's a line in a movie? I can't remember what it is, but it's like I would rather spend this short amount of time with you than a lifetime of like. Oh, God, I can't remember the movie or the line now off the top of my head, but you guys know what I'm getting at here. It, it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's a beautiful notion uh, to think about where somebody chooses to uh, make that, you know, that choice of this brief time of happiness and freedom instead of a lifetime of shackles, pain and depression. Ultimately, um, Kaya, I need to ask right now, Okay. after the initial thoughts and hearing us talk about this for a few minutes here, what, what are your thoughts now? <laughs> like I get it and I get that it's good and I understand your perspectives but it just didn't click for me okay that's fair and maybe maybe that'll change on a second or third watch but for me the problem was and it it usually doesn't bother me but I found the pacing very I don't know what the word is the pacing just got to me and I felt like not a lot was happening, but like maybe that's the point. You know what I realized on this second viewing that I didn't realize on the first one? And I probably should have been smart enough to pick up on this, but I noticed that there was no musical score. Yeah. I, I noticed that right away. Yeah. And that definitely is what it contributes, I think, to the pacing at times is that we're not being manipulated through the use of score to ultimately tell us how to feel. Mm-hmm. And... I think for a lot of audience members, I can think of several off the top of my head, (laughs) my parents, (laughs) that would be a very uh, frustrating viewing experience um, to not be, you know, told how to feel while watching something. And I feel like here it's actually great because it's accurate to the time period. Uh, You know, it's not like there's any music that's like playing other than the music that's actually playing in the real life setting itself so that's fantastic i think and i thought that that was a really really great decision in terms of the immersive quality of the story yeah and and kaya i i had the same issue the first time that i saw the movie where i was like this is this is all really good and i get it but it's it's really slow and kaya first viewing i felt the same exact way as well (laughs) yeah okay and the second time the second time through was so different and the um the i i have to say about the lack of score because the it's a movie about a painter right and the one of i as far as i'm concerned one of the great first opening lines in all cinema first my contours (laughs) and and the the all I, I have this theory that all great movies essentially open by teaching you how to watch them. 
And this this movie does exactly that, and it does it throughout, right? It starts with, first of my contours, and it's talking about, like, noticing the shape of things and the tone of things. And there's another um, scene where she's talking about painting the ear. Yes. And we're just looking – the shot is just of Eloise's ear, and – I, I think that the lack of score, except for the diegetic music, is so perfect because it is a film about looking at things. Mm-hmm. The power of observation. Yeah, and, and noticing all the little the little details and how do you, you know, portray that? How do you create that? And I love that um all the like basically the process shots of her painting like we see it in all these different stages and you can you you watch how she sees um uh Heloise and it it's god it's so brilliant <laughs> it's a brilliant conceit concept for a movie and it, it's done so well because every time the sound is important it's either the it's either like the wind blowing or the sound of the paintbrush strokes or it's the music the either the vivaldi piece or the bonfire where you're almost supposed to close your eyes as the picture's less important because the music's almost telling you the story because it's reflecting mm-hmm. another part of the movie the bonfire scene i gotta ask Oof. real or dream it's real because you see the burn mark later on Eloise's dress, but on the ghost scenes, you have no, you can't see any of the marks on her dress. Interesting. Huh. Because honestly, there was such a quality to that scene where I started to wonder, huh, I wonder if this is uh, like a dream or something, like uh, something along those lines, because it just felt so... Uh, unearthly, especially when she does catch fire, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, I, it's like I don't care if my dress is on fire. I'm fixated on you, and like yeah, pays no attention to that. Is Marianne's memory reflected years later? So different parts of it that were emotional are um, are definitely going to be heightened for her. And the the film also so oh in a, interesting a BFI lecture. Celine Sciamma talks about how in the film she has essentially zero connecting scenes at all like she she'll, she refuses to show any shot that's just them getting from one place to another or something that you would not remember if you were recalling this time with a lover so all of it is really just warped through Marianne's memory so even scenes that we think are first may not be the first but it's just the more memorable part for her because we're only seeing what she actually remembers because it's almost her looking back at it oh that's that's pretty ingenious. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that moment always feels like it, it is happening, but it is supposed to feel very heightened because it is also the one moment where we get music within the film. And so obviously it sticks out. And I think that it's supposed to be more reflective of the emotions that you are supposed to be uh, connecting with with those characters in that scene, it does feel heightened and it feels a little like dreamlike, but I think that's the intention of it. It is supposed to feel that way because that's more of the framework of the emotional state of those characters in that moment. Yeah. And the, I think also the, just the hypnotic otherworldly quality of that music, this, the song and how they sing it is just, that helps 
too in immeasurable ways. And this is going to butcher this forever, maybe, but I will never, ever forget uh, talking to a friend after I saw the movie and we were, um, I don't want to say making fun of the song, but we were like, what do you think like the actual lyrics to that, to that acapella song were? And then somebody said a cherry lung possum. <laughs> and I just was like, the what? Are, I believe, the lyrics are Latin for saying I cannot flee. So it's basically a meta. Much more eloquent. <laughs> But I remember that was like, obviously we weren't being serious, but that was like the reoccurring joke of like, we were just like, a cherry long possum, a cherry long possum. I was like, oh my God, I will, I will never get that out of my head now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It works. works. But in any event, though, it was, it's actually probably one of my, is it my favorite scene in the movie? That's a good question. I do like that scene a lot. I think my favorite scene is actually the end. Yeah, the end. (laughs) The end is something that I wanted her to look at her so bad. So bad. I was hoping she would turn to the camera and then it would cut to black. I was praying for it and it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But that's the point. I know. look, Look away and you were just in that moment of now her memory of of this relationship and oh god that last shot is so incredibly powerful it's (laughs) incredible adele hanel's acting like the the journey that we all go on just fixated on her face and the range of emotions that she covers um during that time i don't know how many minutes that final shot is it's probably not as long as i think it is maybe it's only three four minutes or something like that yeah how much minutes three minutes Three minutes, yeah. But still, still, I could not believe how many emotions and thoughts were running through my mind during those three minutes. Because at by that point, I just didn't know where the movie was going to take me. And you're wrestling with so much. And this movie has done such a tremendous job of getting us invested into these women's mindset and their desires and what they are like as people. And we genuinely care so, so much. And of course, like any great love story, we just want them to to be together in the end. But we're denied that. And that's that's life. My favorite part of that last shot is though, right before it cuts to black, she breathes in every other time, especially with Eloise, because she's, you know, trying to be this great lady of society. Every time she breathes in, that signals that something's happening. So every time we see a very, very visible breath, it's always some event of the film that's coming. But right there, we really expect it because every time she breathes in that final scene too, she shifts into a different phase, whether it's to the crying or to the smiling. We really think something's going to happen, but she just in- she inhales and we can see her inhale and it just cuts to black. I think how it plays with our expectations there is really cool. I would put this final shot up there with the final shot of Inception any day of the week. <laughs> as far as and more so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As far as a will it or, or or will she or will it not well, you know what I mean, compared to the top to uh Eloise <laughs> and it cuts to black and you're like, oh no. <laughs> Oh, man, it's it's phenomenal. It's incredible storytelling. I I loved every minute of it. Another thing too I wanna Sarah, you mentioned Heloise smile there for a second. Yeah. Do you think there's any kind of like like in terms of Adele Hanel's performance, and also to the character um, itself, 
what do we all make of the fact that, you know, for a large majority of the movie, she's not smiling. And then by the time, like, you know, she's starting to get more romantically involved with Marianne, like, her smile starts to come out of her more. Um, I, I, I didn't, it was just an, ob- uh, an observation that I made while watching a movie, and I wanted to uh, just comment on that. What do you, what'd you guys think of that? Uh, when she interacts with different characters, you see her mannerisms change a lot. When she interacts with her mother, you see her almost shrink like a child. She'll soften her face a lot, and she'll act almost like a little kid, and it makes her it makes Adele and I actually look younger in those scenes. When she interacts with Marianne, with Marianne, as you said, she starts smiling for the first time in the film. And then when she's around Sophie, you see her almost become more protective and motherly. So it's actually inter- so you can see how her relations to each character shifts, how she acts to different people. And I think she smiles around Marianne because Marianne's the first person who is fully seeing her as she is. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. And I also love how um, early on in the movie, after the first, maybe the, her first painting session or the first and second painting session, the that... Um, uh, Sophie asks Marianne. She asks her, like, you know, how's it going? She's like, I can't get, I can't get her smile. She's like, did you try being funny? <laughs> and then later in the movie, Eloise says, like, you waited to be funny. <laughs> as and, in, like, and it's also as if, like the smile was dependent on her. Yeah, yeah. It's also really interesting that the first attempt of the portrait is is her smiling and it's this very forced idea of what she yes. thinks she needs to put onto uh, Eloise and mm-hmm. the fact that the second version is without her smiling but feels so much more energetic because we've seen her actual like personality come through just in their interactions it's that very interesting dichotomy between you know what is being painted is not the actual representation of what of who that person really is and it's just another fascinating element that the movie's working with i also want to um point out something that kaya uh said earlier which is 
on the surface, it may feel like the first act in a movie maybe is the most interesting because, well, one, we don't know where the story is going to go, obviously, right? But there is this element of Eloise's sister has recently committed suicide. Um, Marianne is being brought in in secret to observe her for this painting. So there's an element of tension there as well that's established. And then there are like these sort of darker elements, especially in the nighttime sequences, where we don't necessarily know if this is going to be some sort of a ghost story. And we don't know also, too, what's going to be Eloise's fate and how much her sister's death is weighing in on her mind. It's amazing that these are all things that are set up in the very beginning. And by the end, it, it it's not about any of those things at all. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, it's kind of astounding. Um, but Kaya, um, I, I wanted you to kind of like walk us through a little bit uh, your thought process uh, watching the movie. Like what your, I guess, expectations were. And then also too, like what you got like out of it, especially in terms of where the story kind of took you. Okay, so... We know the movie was very hyped up on Twitter and in critic circles and all that. And I have a problem when something is held up to such a high regard, I get really nervous to watch it because I'm like, if it doesn't do that for me, then what does that mean for me? And I'm just going to be so disappointed. So I had, I didn't watch it for a while and it, it happened and yeah. I was underwhelmed, but I really do love the first act. And it's because it made me feel like um, how I felt watching the first act of Hitchcock's Vertigo, how we're made to believe that maybe she is a ghost. Maybe she is a reincarnation of this woman that existed in the past. And that's exactly Ooh. how this felt for me. And Ooh. then and then it's not that. And I was kind of just like, like, I knew it wasn't going to be, but I was like, there's something there that could have intrigued me and it went a different way, which is fine. Dan and Josh know uh, me well enough that the reason why I like to see everything as soon as humanly possible is, is because Kaya, I too fall victim to the hype. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple of instances in my life where things were hyped, 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 hyped that by the time I actually saw it, um, I too uh, definitely felt underwhelmed. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and list th- those movies um, now, but there have been a couple of different instances where that did happen to me. Um, no Country for Old Men was one of them uh, back in 2007. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and that was hereditary. <laughs> And yeah, so, and oh, I hope I had nothing to do with that. Um, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I hyped the shit out of that movie out of Sundance. <laughs> um, but in any event, though, I think that that happens to everyone, and it's part of the reason why I, I I prefer to try and see movies as soon as humanly possible, and also too because I want to be able to formulate my own opinion on them and not have it be clouded by so much of what other people have said that it's like almost conditioningly. Like, I have to feel this way because everybody else feels this way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I also feel like I would have definitely benefited seeing this in theaters rather than seeing this in my room by myself on my laptop. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's it's kind of, like, I it's immersive. And I feel like I would have benefited seeing this on in, like, a matinee. It's kind of empty. It's dark. I feel like I'm the only person watching it. But the screen is huge. Like, 
it just would have been a better experience, I think, if I did see it right away. We need to give a shout out to Claire Maffin, the cinematographer of this movie. <sighs> oh, For sure. Mm-hmm. The the unsung hero, greatest person in cinema of 2019. <laughs> like, between like, this and Atlantics. Like, this was uh, some of the best cinematography that I saw last year. That I, I don't know if you guys remember, Dan and Josh, but I was stealthily predicting this to, at the very least, crack through with a lone cinematography nomination on Oscar morning because I just found the visuals in this to be so undeniable. Like, how? How could you watch this and not list this as your top five cinematography of the year? I was so disappointed by the no cinematography. I was just like, nope, not watching. It's unreal. Again, thanks a lot, Neon. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, the, the... just the just the use of color in the movie yeah. would be enough. Just those compositions would be enough. <laughs> just the bonfire scene mm-hmm. would be enough. <laughs> the shots of water are enough. Oh my god! I well, I I, I oh. tried to like pay attention to um, the soft uh, hue. Uh, that was put on to the movie to make because the colors aren't like deeply saturated necessarily but what in regards to like the dresses especially the production design is so minimal and kind of bland if you ask me but it creates this amazing contrast into the costumes which really allows for those colors to pop and shine through um, because the background itself isn't distracting us or taking away from the striking imagery that's on display from those costumes. So in that regard, it's like the production design, the cinematography, and the costumes are all working together to create something that is just so visually just, oh! (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. And a great it's example so that shows you you can make a period piece and shoot it digitally. Yeah. 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 Like, far and away the best digital cinematography, I think, that I've seen. It, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I really have no words. And then also, too, Sarah, <laughs> you mentioned something interesting before about how this is a memory piece, and as a result, the editing... Because uh, I did notice that there were a lot of instances where the editing at times may have felt maybe to someone jarring. But uh, you were talking before about the deliberate decisions behind that. Everything everything shot for the film aside from one reverse shot of Marianne that Celine teased releasing that she is not yet and has not responded to questions about. Everything um, shot for the film is in it except for a couple alternate takes of scenes like there is no extra material there are no deleted scenes there, like everything is shot directly every shot is planned so it's supposed to be that jarring because she wants to limit it to just the memories Marianne's focused on which I find really fascinating yeah the editing in this movie is so good the there is one that we talked about the the card playing scene before which is like mm-hmm. maybe the moment of purest joy in the whole movie. And that scene ends with Hillary's laughing and then smash cut to her posing for the portrait with the most sullen look on her face. Yeah. And that is, it's such, uh, and you know, going from like candlelit to full daylight and their, you know, like day dresses to that 
gorgeous green confection and uh. My favorite edit in the movie was their final embrace before Marion leaves. And instead of the camera holding on to the emotion of that moment as uh, she lets out like a breath as she holds her, it smash cuts. So we don't even see her pulling away from Heloise as she's leaving. And uh, that was a really, really great edit, I thought. Oh, God, the other one. Um, I, I, we, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet, but the the dream vision that Marianne has of her in her wedding dress. Oh yeah. How there, there are two of them. And then there's the actual one and how they play with light and shadow and her disappearing in the first two. It's a practical effect too. Yeah. Which I cannot even believe that it's a practical effect. Claire Mathen. Claire. Praise. <laughs> like, God damn you. Like, that is that the first shot of those. Like, that for my money is the most beautiful shot in any movie of 2019. And it's this otherworldly. I remember seeing it for the first time in the theater, and I actually let out an audible gasp. Like I did the gay so gas in the theater. Oh my God. And it's just this, it's so otherworldly and like puts every other movie to shame. But then how that third one, which actually happens for real echoes the way that she disappears in oh. the first two shots. But it's because Marianne is closing the door on her. She and, doesn't fade that time. Yeah. Yeah. God, so so good and so thematically brilliant and ah, I'm, I'm sorry. Like this movie just like takes all the uh, picture is worth a thousand words, and I can't. I don't have a thousand <laughs> words to talk here. It's quite all right. Um, I actually would like to pass it over at this point to final thoughts, and when I say final thoughts, that basically means. Either you want to reiterate something or it's something that we haven't talked about yet. So, Kaya, I'm going to pass it over to you first. Is there anything that we didn't mention or something you want to reiterate on Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Um, I, I do find it interesting that the whole film is about, like, the act of looking, the act of watching, and the act of being watched. And that was something I did really enjoy and I did find very interesting. It's about how these women perceive each other and how women in general perceive each other rather than how the world perceives women. And I did really appreciate that aspect of it. Yeah, I appreciate the thoughtfulness that goes into something like that, especially, and how subtle it has to be so that your, especially your critical audience that doesn't like being told how to feel while watching something, that they don't turn on your movie all of a sudden. You know, the fact that this had such unanimous, like, critical praise i think is a testament to how much control celine siama had over the making of every element of this movie and it reminds me in many ways um uh dan of when we did our review of carol and i will never ever forget the analogy that you uh gave which is george miller's direction of um mad max fury road that year was the most praised because it was so look at me look at me look at me where direction like this or like Todd Haynes is in Carol 
is just as detailed, just as meticulously planned and thought out, but doesn't have that look at me, look at me, look at me quality. And we as a society tend to look at one more favorably. And well, let's just put it this way. We're a podcast here that's trying to get people to change their minds on that. (laughs) So um, both need to be taken into consideration for different reasons and purposes. And it does not mean that one is necessarily better than another. I, I think that this kind of level of filmmaking just deserves more consideration. And it's asking for it, too. That's the thing. It's asking you to give it consideration. So, yeah, I really, really appreciate um, that theme of the movie, especially, Kaya, of the power of observation. Sarah. Yeah. Final thoughts time. Um, so I think a lot of the reason why the film has developed such a cult following um is because it's it's a les- it's an explicitly lesbian film that has no aspect of shame to it. The characters are never shamed for it because it's two women. They're shamed because it's outside the societal societal structure, and it's never quite shamed for their romance. Even with Carol, which is considered a film that's more of a traditional happy ending, because they look at each other at the end, that has an element of shame. We see Carol go through her divorce, and we see her kid get taken away from her, and we see them shamed by society. Here, society never hurts them. I think that's Celine speaking to an audience. I think that's also her speaking to her younger self. And I think France got really mad at that. The film, even though it had a lot of critical praise here, it did really badly with critics in France because they didn't understand how a film could have so little conflict for its romance. And I think what Celine has always been trying to create with her films is she's been trying to create like a safer space in a place that's not shameful, but she's trying to make it almost for her younger self. And to say that the film doesn't have that conflict, it's conflict of the times, of society, and it doesn't need to be overstated. It would have been so easy. It would have been so easy to have Heloise's mother have a scene where she confronts Heloise about her relationship with Marianne and maybe she slaps Heloise or something like that. That's that that Oscar bait dramatic scene that I was alluding to earlier that this film doesn't have because it doesn't need it. These women are already shackled by the time period in which they are living right now, and they are not able to uh, live that life as they want to lead it. So that alone is the conflict in and of itself. Yeah, shame on anyone that that says that this movie has no conflict. And people talk about the portrait scene at the end uh, when she sees the portrait of Heloise in the gallery, and that's a lot of people say that's the weakest of the three endings. But that one to me is the saddest. We see her with the kid and we realize that the having the husband was a concrete thing. And we know this was something she really didn't want and that she's forced into the relationship with this man. But we see her still holding on. We see that 28 and we know that she's still she's still thinking about Marianne and that she hasn't found exactly found that happiness outside of her. And I think that's what makes it the saddest. Yeah. And what's also interesting she is smiling in that portrait. Mm-hmm. Because she thinks Marianne, she thinks someone will see, or she's trying to, I don't know, create almost a, either an illusion of happiness or almost trying to create a comfort for someone who may see it. Could you imagine, like, whoever's painting her? Could, 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 could you lose the book, madam? Uh, no, I think not. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm going to hold on to this book. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, a woman in France. <laughs> has to be in the picture. I am, I am demanding it. <laughs> she won't actually let the artist see the page. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Dan Bear. Um, so first off, uh, shout out to uh, Helene Delmer, who did the paintings and 
all of that, all the art for the movie, um, because it, it it's such an important part of the film, and I don't think she ever really gets the credit that she deserves. So that I just I feel like I need to reiterate, like just how special it is to have a movie that takes place in this period where we barely see any men. Like, I can't even think of any other period film of which that is true. I can think of very few films, period, that don't have that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but particularly period, and particularly of this period, I just, one other thing that makes this so special, and I, one, one thing that I vaguely remembered from the first viewing but hit me like an absolute ton of bricks this time was everything that was involving orpheus and eurydice um the the artist muse relationship between eloise and marianne is uh really interesting and tying it to orpheus and eurydice so strongly um i particularly love the scene where um, when Heloise is reading Orpheus out loud and the three of them are debating the ending. And it, it's particularly interesting to me because I have sort of always been of Sophie's view, well, he's just a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, why would you, like, see, you had a specific I don't specific see him as the idiot now because of the film. The film makes me understand <laughs> it. Yeah, ex- yeah, totally. And then to have those two different views, and especially Marianne's final one, like, he he's an artist. Like, he makes the poet's decision to turn around and remember her, to always have her memory as opposed to her. And, and then that was the fight where Eloise, yeah. is, Eloise is encouraging that poet's decision in the end of the film, but in the fight, she's she's the one who's always saying that oh, I don't want you to help me resist because I know it's not going to go well. She's the realist here. And it's interesting yes. how much that con- contrasts with the book. Yeah, and I I love that that final confrontation, how it it is so close to being that like stereotypical Oscar Beatty scene, but holds back just enough. She's- and it feels like to the point where it almost doesn't feel like a conflict but you still feel how hurt each of them yeah. are i can't wait, much they- can't wait the criterion yeah. subtitles are fixing that, that scene by the way I, some of the dialogue gets a little clunky the french and oh, there's a yes. lot smoother and the original yeah. english translation I, there like um this the english translation also loses um so they'll say boo instead of two in different scenes when they're addressing each other yeah. and um they only refer to each other in the informal in that scene where they're facing each other in bed yeah. at the end in the dark and in the return to um, turn around scene. Those are the only two times they address each other informally. And it's actually really interesting because that gets lost in the English. So it's all the I film almost that. works differently in different languages. Yes. Yeah. The two in view is so, and that's a subtle thing that you would only get if you knew French and it's so important and so good. Um, and also, I think this has two of my favorite lines one about the beginning of a relationship and one about the end of a relationship. The, like, maybe my favorite lines ever in any movie 
Um, and the first one is, do all lovers feel like they're inventing something? And, and is <laughs> which is, I've never heard it put that way before and is just really beautiful. But then it's it's topped by the uh, when they're talking about the painting when it's almost finished and Eloise asks Marianne how do we know it's finished and Marianne says at one point we stop yeah and I just, I remember yeah, watching you're so certain and then the end they're asking and answering the question the beginning uh-huh. they're so confident and they're like hesitant to end it and <laughs> uh-huh. one point. We that the whole at one point we stopped and that was the moment in when I first saw it that I like noticed that my face was wet. Um, opening scene because I was so excited to see it early. I'm like, oh, I'm seeing this with more friends. And I just started crying because I was so excited. <laughs> But like it's it's one of those lines that like should be obvious. Like yo, she's talking about the painting and their relationship. Ooh, but like, ugh. so well done. All right, Josh Parm. Uh, I think that for me, when I tend to think about this movie, I just think of like a lot of little details and scenes. Like one thing that really hit me this time was when. Marion goes to say goodbye at the end that she goes to hug uh, Eloise's mother first and then hug Eloise. And it's like, oh, well, she hugged the mom first so that she can have the excuse to do that. And it's like it makes sense within that moment. And it's so, so well done. Um, But I actually think that one of my all time favorite moments in this film is when she when Marion is looking at the previously painted portrait the unfinished one and she ends up burning it and it's like this movie is literally destroying the male gaze and i absolutely love it for it (laughs) it's a good point i also love that moment when she's like she's moving the candle along it and she moves it along the neck Mm -hmm. down the arm and it's very sensual it is like she's caressing her and then of course lights where does she light on fire the bosom (laughs) yeah not an accident and it's a portrait that is unfinished because it doesn't have the woman's face like it gets all the other details except her actual face yep and oh god and that's the other i'm sorry i'm like hijacking your moment josh oh no go ahead go ahead the um the the brilliant thing is that it's not until Marianne decides to what destroy the face of her painting that Heloise is like, okay, yeah, I'll stay and sit for your portrait. It's like, now you get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you get it. And I, <laughs> I, I, I love that so much. I love how the destroyed painting looks like Helene Delmer's art style outside because outside of Portrait, she's done a lot of series where she'll do a perfect realistic oil painting and then just slash it. And that is in Portrait. Like she's completely within her art style the way she messes it up too. That's pretty cool that it's like a homage to her work then in that sense. That's awesome. I love that. I don't know what else I can add. I, I think I think I've said everything that I want to say, and I think you guys have provided um, such such great commentary. And Kaya too, also because I do want to uh, give 
um, a bit of leeway to people who, you know, I totally understand if this movie is not their cup of tea in regards to its pacing. And that was something that I felt when I first saw the film a little bit. And I originally gave the movie an extremely strong 8 out of 10. Um, On a rewatch, I have bumped that grade up. I am now a 9 out of 10. Josh Parm, what's your grade? Well, when I first saw this movie, I was actually at a 9 out of 10 because I did find some of those pacing issues within the film. But as I've returned to it, it is just like those issues don't really bother me that much. I get so swept up in the story that it's being told. And and for right now, yeah, I am at a very strong 10 out of 10. I think it's one of the great, great, greatest movies ever made, to be honest with you. All right. Very cool. Dan Bear, how about yourself? I'm in the exact same position as Josh. I was initially a nine because like little pacing issues, but on a rewatch, it is such an obvious 10 that I want to go back in time and slap my former self silly. Nah. Hey, you know what? It's fine. (laughs) Movies that come out during award season. Sometimes we don't know the true brilliance until we uh, watch them again on a rewatch because they're just so crowded around other films that are taking up noise, you know what I mean, during that time. So I I kind of I kind of understand in that regard. Uh all right, Kaya, where where do you land? I'm curious. Oh god. It's okay. No shame. There's no judgment here. <laughs> I won't shame. Um 6.5 out of 10. We don't do 0.5s unfortunately. This is your first Oh, it's a 6? Okay. Yeah. All righty. <laughs> all right, 6 it is. Sarah, 100 1,000? Yeah. 10,000? Yeah. I think we know how I feel about the movie. There's a video of me I put on the internet where I'm, like, freaking out because I liked it better than Mulholland Drive, which was my favorite for years. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's movies better than Mulholland Drive, guys. <laughs> <laughs> to kind of end this conversation, that's actually a funny segue because – David Lynch was able to, by some miracle, get a Best Director nomination and only a Best Director nomination for Mulholland Drive uh, when that film came out. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, as we know, was submitted uh, for the 92nd Academy Awards uh, in other categories after it lost out to be uh, France's submission for the Best International Feature Film category, which, of course, it uh, lost out to Les Miserables, which got the nomination and it did not get any other nominations. Um, looking back on it, there's what we want, and then there's the reasonable expectation. And I think the reasonable expectation at the time was, hey, you know what? It could very well pop up like in cinematography or costume design. I know actually there were some people on our site that were predicting maybe uh, – that to happen here or there. There were, there were some of us. Yeah. And then there was, I think, one person, I don't remember who it was, but like one person was like, I don't know if it was a hopeful pet or if it was just, hey, the director's branch just might be feeling crazy that day and Celine Siama Celine might get in there. Academy member. Like Celine's a voting member. Well, actually, she got invited. It doesn't release whether or not she is, but, I, but she was invited a few years ago. Mm, interesting. But um, yeah, nothing happened. Well, we also know that the campaigning from Neon was par- uh, partially responsible for that. And mm-hmm. look, we get it. Like, you know, they had a priority and clearly 
it paid off for them, but it did mean that a lot of their other films just didn't get the same attention, and this was a casualty. Yeah, it wasn't just Portrait of a Lady on Fire. No, You're right, it, it was wasn't. other films they also had that year, too. Yeah, I, And look, they, you know, they were only around for three years, like, and this was the first time they were really in it, so... It's understandable, but it doesn't make it any less sad. I agree. Yeah, I think yeah. French award season honestly hurt more, especially by how yeah. they and how they entirely yeah. set them up. Ugh. When we got to the César Awards, and for the film to win just Best Cinematography, and then to see what beat it that evening, yeah. I agree I, with Sarah. Yeah. That hurt. Yeah, I covered the night over on um, Awards Watch after, and I mentioned how they they gave it cinematography because Claire on Claire Mallon had the two films and so it would basically be impossible to not give it to her without it being obvious. And also they're basically just saying, Oh, the film's a pretty picture. That's it. We don't care. Yeah. 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 Well also the um <laughs> France gonna France and uh, yep. all Who three of director ran especially rather outspoken. They, they, they all walked out and made their point. Yeah. Yeah. Like I France is yeah. Um mm-hmm. it's unless you're Agnes Varda, women just don't make films according to French people, apparently. They do. France <laughs> has like a way be- has way better statistics for female directors. The thing is, if you make any sort of radical statement in your film against the like based French idea of constant seduction, you are essentially not given awards there. Especially after getting the screenplay award at Cannes. Yeah, I know we kind of already mentioned before in terms of like above the line stuff, maybe for best picture, best director, and also the screenplay, Dan, like you said. You know, it's easy to see why Neon went, you know, with what they ended up going with in regards to Parasite. But also, too, this movie, like any other movie that came out the year before that had to compete against Roma, this movie just had the unfortunate timing of being released in a year where the preordained best foreign language film winner was always going to be Parasite. And I I do believe that if Celine Siama can make something that is at the same level of quality as this, I think she would definitely be in that position again, the same way that like Bong Joon-ho was this year. Sometimes it just comes down to timing. You know, and that and, and that's that's super unfortunate too. Um, what was really cool was like when you watched um, certain critics groups that found a way to honor both films. Like they would give Portrait the best foreign language film award. Maybe Parasite would take director or picture. Like there there were critics that were going to bat for this movie and giving it cinematography wins and putting Celine Sciamma in their director lineups. Like they like critics were trying, but the industry just wasn't biting, unfortunately. I, I don't care about um, Neon's awards strategy so much in terms of how much they you know, were pushing the film. It was honestly the release schedule that I think doomed it. Yeah. Because if they had committed to actually releasing it nationwide in December as opposed to doing the New York and L.A. qualifying run, I think enough people might have seen it for it to have snuck into cinematography at the very least. I mean, that's a good point, too, because they opted to go wide in February around Valentine's Day. Which, and by all means, that makes sense. Like if, or, or if they had done that, like then it could have gotten cinematography. On Valentine's Day is great. You know, I like, saw it with Celine there on Valentine's Day. It's such a cool experience to actually see it then. But 
I feel like they went for like the flashy romantic idea to kind of cover up that they really wanted to drop it from awards play and focus on one thing. Well, I think the problem is that the people who in our circles care about this film the most are like awards people, critics, you know, people that are hardcore cinephiles. And once the award season is over and you're releasing it after the award season, especially at a point where people kind of want to relax a little bit, maybe take a break from movies for a little bit, too. I know some people that do that once the Oscars are over. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, okay, fine. Valentine's Day. Like, sure, I get that on paper. But in terms of just capturing the buzz when it's hot, striking while the iron's hot. Nah, this needed to go wide at a time when. People are excited to be going to the movie theater and people are excited to be watching movies. And that is around that leaked online. The film leaked online like in December, too. Mm -hmm. And so a a lot of the online following all watched it then. And I don't know how many I think a lot of people still saw it in theaters. But just the way that it leaked so early on while so many few people could actually have watched it legally made it a bit of a mess, too, with film circles. I mean, it made twenty three million dollars, which, you know, not bad. Yeah, not bad at all for a foreign language film. It Mm -hmm. just sucks that it had this such half measure of a release where they gave it a qualifying run in December and then waited two months to release it wide. So it's like it technically qualified for the 2019 Oscars, but it was so small that nobody really got a chance to see it. And when it got wide, now it doesn't count anymore. And it's like neon could be at the top of all of these best of 2020 lists so far, if they had waited to just release it in February, wide, they would have had it. That's very interesting. Had the film come out this year and not qualified for last year. Yeah. Cause especially because once France did not select it, I think that just erased it from their, roster in terms of what they were going to campaign and because of that it just seemed like it would have made so much more sense for them to say okay we'll just take it out completely we'll release it in 2020 and deal with it then and with the way events have turned out like this would be at the top of everybody's list of saying what is the best film of 2020 it could have been a city of god situation too where it could have gotten all those oscar nominations the following year outside of the foreign language film category yeah yeah and figure that they would have had you know I mean, depending on when they had released it, they would have had at least a month to two months to just just focus on marketing that movie and marketing it to the people who love Oscars and awards movies and art films. And when like very little else was playing, you know, they they really could have made it a moment and instead, they went for this hybrid thing. And I understand the desire to get it out there as soon as possible for the people who wanted to see it, especially since people have been sort of railing about long waits for movies in recent years. Um, hashtag call me by your name. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, like th- this hybrid strategy just screwed the film, I think, in every possible way in terms of recognition. Hey, but you know what, though? We got that Criterion release coming in a few days and the <sighs> film will be immortalized and it's getting an amazing treatment. Um, the Blu-ray is beautiful. Which has the most gorgeous cover art from a company so that is beautiful. Known- yep. I can't wait to dive into the special features on it as well. Um I know I'm sure for like Sarah, it will be like no new information. <laughs> but... I genuinely 
think I may have run out of interviews Celine has done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not kidding. But I'm very, very happy that they are capitalizing on the just the buzz of this movie and releasing this film now as opposed to waiting like seven years or whatever it is to give it the criterion treatment. And I call it whatever you want to call it, maybe in terms of them just trying to get, you know, some extra cash in the door, whatever it is. It's still a prestigious thing to have your film in the Criterion Collection. And I think if any film uh, from recent years deserves I've that honor. Said of her other films, that they're so hard to get in the U.S., like in physical copies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people can watch it for Hulu, on Hulu, obviously, right now, but it's still, you know, it's not the same as watching a Blu-ray, you know, with the pristine picture quality. And of course, like I said, that's supplemental content. So. Alrighty, well that'll do it for our review of Portrait of a Lady on Fire here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Um, Sarah, thank you, thank you so so much. Thank you. Um, you provided so much extra commentary here that I hope that those that listened today uh, took something away from what you said. I know I certainly did. Uh, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. Um, you can usually find me at cinema, etc. I'm kind of all over right now for film writing, but you can find me on Twitter at peppermint sodas, that cool film stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Kaya, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at film lesbian. Awesome. Thank you so much once again for coming back on the show. Really appreciate it. And Josh Parham. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And Daniel Bear. You can find me on Twitter at DancinDan on film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Portrait Lady on Fire here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave us some thoughts. Rate us five stars. Couldn't hurt. And as always, if you want to get extra content, head on over to Patreon, where for $1 minimum a month, you'll be able to get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.